What a great Sunday we had last week, right? Yeah, you guys, let me say this. I was very surprised at how far some of you will go to get kids to come to see us here. <laughs> you went way above and beyond, and I'm very thankful for that. But now you've, you've kind of done yourself a disservice, because now I know how far I can push you <laughs> to get you to go over and above what needs to happen. But what you did by serving our community and allowing a place for all of our kids to come together allowed us to have over 1,000 people here at one time so that we could build relationships and we could just care for people and love on them. And so we hope that that will make a kingdom impact as time goes on. So thank you for serving. Thank you for giving your time, your money, your, your efforts. Uh, it was really, really helpful, I think, for us to love one another well and to love our community. So thanks for being a part of that. Um, I have a couple other things I want to say to you real quick. Uh, one is about budget. Before I do that, though, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we get ready to look in 1 Samuel chapter 17, closing down our series on uh, epic uh, every story has a hero. We're going to be looking at David and Goliath. I'll give you a minute because that's in the Old Testament, and so it takes a minute to get there for some of us, right? If you don't know where it is, don't be ashamed to use the index, okay? Go back and look there. Uh, but while you're doing that, let me say this. So one of the first tasks that was hit on me when I first got here, pushed to me, was to work on budgeting. And so I've done that working with the finance team and our staff and other uh, team leaders, and we have put together a budget that will be voted on in two weeks. You've heard it talked about in the video that was played in the beginning of the service. Uh, on the 18th, we're going to cancel Sunday school classes during that hour. Sounds crazy, I know, except that what we want to do is bring everybody in during the Sunday school hour to this room. We're going to have some light refreshments that we're going to offer for you in case you're hungry or in case you got here late, uh, didn't have time to pick up breakfast. Uh, don't come too hungry, light refreshments. But we want to get you here, and we're going to talk about the budget, and we're going to have any questions, the answer that you need, uh, and then we're going to vote on the budget together. If you'd like to have a copy of that budget ahead of time, we have some provided for you in the back of the room, right over here by the, the tables back there. Uh, there's a music stand with a copy of the budget. Please take that home, look at it, pray over it. Uh, when we come to vote on that in two weeks, we're going to ask you to vote one of two ways. We're going to ask you to vote either that you believe God is definitely leading us for, to, to vote in this budget, or God is definitely leading us not to vote in this budget. It's not about what we like or dislike or anything. It's about what do you think God's telling us to do. And so that's how we're going to vote on the budget. And so I encourage you to take one home, pray over it, see what's going on, get invested in what we're doing and where the money's going that you give, and then come to a Wednesday night prayer meeting, the next two if you want, and we'll answer any question you want. We'll also do that if you want to make an appointment with me or anybody else on staff. We'll be glad to set up an appointment to meet with you and answer any questions you might have. All right. Business is done. Ready? Yeah, a few of you are ready. Here we go. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, I'm also going to, to, to take us a little bit of a detour because in order for you to really get the impact of this story and how it's had an impact in my life that I want to kind of push towards you guys, we first have to understand a little bit more about me. Now, I've spent the first eight or so weeks being here without talking a whole lot about me personally, except in little uh, stories as we went along through sermon time. But today I'm going to spend a little bit more time to kind of bring you into some knowledge about my personal testimony, uh, merely just to say, this is what you need to know before you actually can understand where we're going today. So I want you to see some of this. Uh, it's, it's not all a pretty picture, so be ready. I might even classify it to some levels at NC-17 worship gathering today. Um, I'm not going to be on the bad end of delivery, but it's just got some real serious topics. So I hope you'll prepare your heart for that and pray for me as we go through this time because it's not always easy to talk about your past, right? So let's, let's get ready for that. Let me pray for us, and then we're just going to usher into our time. 
Father, I know that we can just move quickly into the things that we do as we gather. But more than anything, we want you and your presence in our lives. Together now and as we leave and as we go through the week, we want you and your presence to be in the forefront of our minds and our actions and our decisions. So today, Lord, I pray that you would work in us and make us more into the image of you, Lord that we would be changed because of your work, and that we would give you the glory for it, and we would enjoy you more because of it, so that your son Jesus would be exalted. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Now, some of you have known me for a long time. Some of you have known me from since I was a baby or about two years old when I first moved back to the area. Uh, some of you have not known me very long at all, just eight weeks or even less for some of you in the room. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of a breakdown about some of my history. At about the age of two, my mom and dad divorced, and my mom moved me back here from Atlanta. And uh, my dad's really from the Sheffield area. My dad moved back here as well, as you know. He was a member of this church for a long time. And uh, so I kind of grew up in a home that was what we would consider a broken home. It wasn't God's desire for the home where you have a man and a woman together in that way. Uh, and I don't fault my parents on that. They just, you know, it's just the way it ended up, right? We all make choices. But I grew up in a broken home. I was kind of a good student, not because I tried hard, but because it just came natural to me. I mean, shooting a basketball into the actual hoop, it didn't come natural. But making good grades in math came very natural for me. You know, I did a little better in baseball, but not as well as I did in, say, science or math or something like that. So that was kind of more my gig, and it was easy to do. Um, I was also a religionist or a churchgoer, you might say. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. At the age of six, I remember somebody coming to my house and talking to my mom and me, and that they... They told me to pray a prayer, and I did, and they baptized me in a church in Southside, and then I, um, I guess it didn't take, and so at about the age of 12, I went through that process again, and at the age of 16, I went through that process again, so I'm like baptized three times over by that point, and uh, I didn't take until a little bit of time in college to realize I didn't really know the Lord. I was just walking through the religious things. I felt some tugs in my heart. I felt some conviction on me, especially when you, man, when you sing some of these songs like 10 times in a row at the end of the service, just beckoning people to come down, you know what I'm saying? It can pull at your heartstrings a little bit. And I don't know what it was or what the conglomerate was. Maybe the Lord was pulling me and I just didn't really understand and didn't really confess and repent and believe. But I don't believe I was a Christian. Uh, I can say that because of the other stuff you're about to hear me talk about. Um, I was also a liar, full on all the time liar. I don't even know why I did it. It just was natural. It was, my, it, was, it was like just the normal thing to do was to lie all the time. Maybe some of you, I've, I've met some people that grow up like that. We don't like to tell people that because then people question everything we say, right? But I'm just being honest with you. Talk about being confessional. Here we go. I was a liar. Didn't realize it until later that I just did it for no reason. Um, I was a womanizer and an alcoholic all through college. Uh, I mean, I, and I say that legitimately. I, 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 there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't drinking alcohol probably in mass quantities most of the time. Um, and I would use and abuse just about anybody I could for whatever I needed or wanted. Um, I was a manipulator. Uh, I ended up becoming a drug dealer while I was in college. Uh, I started taking drugs in high school about my senior year and ended up selling uh, drugs of various kinds for a couple of years. Uh, not because I felt empty inside and had to have something make me feel whole. It was more of a, I want to experience something new. And I wanted to just do something that either was more to life than what I was getting, and I didn't understand why, but I just wanted more and more and more, so I kept trying new things. And the way to make that happen where you can afford it when you're a college student is to sell it to other people too. And so that's what I got into. Um, and then I also, because of the relationships and my bad choices, I was in a relationship, and 
Um, at one point in this relationship, I was told by this woman that um, she was pregnant with my kid. And so I began to wonder, how am I going to make this happen? How is this going to work? And so um, I stand before you today ashamed to tell you that I then encouraged her to have an abortion. And um, after a lot of conversations, she did that. And it was after that, or in that process, that we found out that she, had, she was pregnant with two children. And there's not a year that goes by, a day usually that goes by that I don't think about that and ask the Lord to give me that peace again that only he can bring from those decisions. Um, I, I have, I've been, it's just destroyed me. My life, all my choices have done nothing except for the most part, except bring me sadness and hatred towards self. And uh, I'm not any better than anybody else out there. I'm probably worse than most. I feel like when Paul says I'm the chief of all sinners, it really resonates in my soul. But you know what? It didn't, it still didn't change everything for me until I met Jesus. And then I still have consequences to those decisions. But here's how I met Jesus. On September 11, 2001, at about midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, I tried to go to bed. And God had been working on me all the way up for months and maybe years, I'm sure, before that. But in that night... I went to bed, and I was laying in bed, and remember uh, that it felt like God's presence was in the room, although I didn't see him or hear him audibly speak to me, but it might as well have been audible in the things that I was talking to God and having a conversation. I was like, God, I'll give up this, but I don't want to give up that. I mean, the weightiness of God in the room, that's what his glory means. Talk about the glory of God. That means the weightiness of God. And so his presence was on me in the room. I could not shake it. I was trying, I'll give up this thing, but not that thing, and this thing, and it just trying to deal with God, and you know what happens, you try to deal with God, it doesn't work, and so he was determined to save me that night, and at some point, three, four hours later, I rolled out of the bed, onto the floor, I felt like I was looking up out of a well with nowhere to look but up, and I just saw the beauty of Christ, and God just brought my heart to life, and I became a believer in Jesus, and in the same moment, it's not audibly, but it was like I heard him saying, you will preach the gospel, You'll preach the gospel of my son. And as it was in that moment, I only know the day because I went to sleep right after that, after I cried my eyes out through that process. I went to sleep, woke up, and the next morning turned on the TV in time to see the second tower get hit. And that's how I know the date was because of that infamous day. It's been a whirlwind ever since then. Um, most people say that's where this story ends, but it doesn't. I was a moralist after that. I, I knew that I'd come to faith. Now I've got to be a better person. I've got to work hard and get where I need to be. And so I went to seminary. And Jesus kind of was continually the way I'd gotten into this thing, but it was really me becoming my own hero even after that. I kept saying, I can do this. I'm going to get better. I'm going to be a better communicator. I'm going to be a better preacher. I want to preach to a lot of people. I want to have a lot of influence. Um, I, I just want to be this guy. And so what I had been doing was I kind of wanted to be the hero all throughout my life. In fact, when I went to college, I wanted to be the big man on campus. I'm going to be that guy. I wasn't that in high school. I want to be that there. So I tried really hard to become that person. In a lot of ways, I did. And so I kind of became the hero in my own mind in, in all these areas of life. In areas I didn't, I felt like a failure. I felt a lot of stress and pressure on myself for not being that guy. And even after I was saved, I still felt like I had to be the hero. And I felt like I had to show this certain side of me to everybody and become this great orator and speaker and preacher and just all these pressures that are just were on me. I think most of us in here can relate to that part at least and maybe some of the other stuff. But that's when this story entered my life. Now, I had grown up hearing this story, right? I mean, how many people in here have not heard David and Goliath? Probably very few, if any have not heard of the story. You either saw it in a movie or you, you, you've read it on the Bible, the Bible yourself, or maybe you looked at it on a felt board. Anybody on a felt board? Yeah. A few of us? Okay, yeah. Um, we, we have heard this story and we know this story, but I will posit to you 
that for many of us, the way we've heard this story and what the big moral of the story is, is actually not right according to Scripture. Okay? I want you to hang with me. I'm not going to bring you something new that nobody's talked about. If I did that, you should worry. What I'm going to do, though, is take it to a point at which a lot of people don't take it. They take it halfway and don't take it all the way. And so I want you to see this story. But this story changed my life. It turned everything upside down for me. So we're going to jump in the story right here. Are you ready? Okay, let's look. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words on the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Notice Saul is mentioned twice. He's mentioned a little bit earlier when he says, are you not servants of Saul? And then in verse 11, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, the reason Saul's mentioned twice there is to make it really clear, if we weren't sure, Saul's the guy that should be stepping out to fight this battle. Okay, if you go back and look and learn about Saul, he was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. I mean, he was the champion. He's the guy that should be stepping out to take charge and be the guy out there on the front. That's how it worked back in those days. He should have been doing it, but he wasn't. This guy came out here back and forth every day. They would draw up for battle. Goliath would come out and make these chants and these kind of like statements. And this went on for 40 days, morning and evening, for 40 days. Let me pick it up down uh, in verse 23 in a second. Let me tell you this. Verse 12 through 22 is basically telling us that David is the youngest of eight children. He goes to the battle to deliver food for his dad, to give to their, their guy in charge of their battalion, uh, and to check on his brothers for his father and give them some food. And uh, he goes out there, and then he gets in the mix of them. He starts talking with his brothers, and here's where we pick it up, verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the man, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What he means by free is that he would not, that, that family would no longer have to pay taxes or any kind of tribute to the king. They would be completely free of any of those kind of accommodations that other people would have to make in the kingdom. Right? Verse 26. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? He's kind of like, what did you say? He's going to get all these riches. He gets to marry the king's daughter, and he gets to be free. That's what he's saying, right? He said, what did you say to that? He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, David immediately makes it something about God and not about uh, just the army, right? Keep going, verse 27. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So he's asked, they told him, they replied again, the same reply. This is what you'll get, whoever does it. Verse 28 and 29 are basically David's brothers getting mad at him for being there. Quit stirring up trouble, little brother, right? Get out of here. And he basically says, what? What did I do? You know, and he turns back around in verse 30, and he says, he turned away from him, from his brother, toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. It's like David's like, I can't believe it. They're going to give you what? If somebody kills this guy? Like, yeah, you're going to get all the riches. You're going to get the, the girl, and you're going to get the freedom. He's like, no, no, tell me again. What's, what are you going to get if you do this? He keeps asking the question over and over again, right? Then we see verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, 
Let no man's heart fail because of him. Now, what that really means, if you just translated the Hebrew directly, it kind of sounds like this. Let nobody have a heart attack because of this guy, right? He says, your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went and after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For, here's the reason, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Notice what David's doing. He's saying, you know, I've done this, I've done this. He said, but he didn't give credit where credit is due. God delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear. And God will deliver me from this Philistine who defies my God. He will deliver me. So what's happening is you've got this young boy who's stepping up to do something that Saul should have been doing. If you know the backstory a little bit, you know that Saul has, is at this point, he's on the outs with God. He is no longer following after God the way he should have been. He did not do the things he was supposed to do the way he was supposed to do them. And now in, verse, in chapter 16, right before this, uh, the guy who gets to anoint the kings goes out as the prophet of God, and he, he goes out to, to the family of Jesse trying to find out which one God's going to say is going to be the next king. And, of course, the one he thinks would never be the one is the youngest one and the most frail one, which is David. And so he anoints David, and it says, in the, if you go back and read it, it says, in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and remained with him, okay? So he's in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, brothers and sisters, that same Holy Spirit that resides in David resides in you if you put your faith and hope in Christ, right? The Holy Spirit is upon him, and now he's speaking this way, and Saul says, finally, dude, go, go, Lord be with you. So then Saul, verses 39, 38, 39, Saul tries to dress him in his own armor because he's like, you got to have some armor. Look at this guy. But the armor is too big for David. He can't do it. So we pick up verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he, as he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. This guy is so big. All this armor. He also has an extra guy that carries a full body shield in front of him. Okay? David's coming out with a big stick and some rocks. Now, just so you know, guys who slung rocks, they were a part of armies. You go back to Egypt and you find around this date and time, there were depictions of guys that had slings as a part of the army. So it was a weapon, but nothing like the giant sword and the, and the javelin that, that, that Goliath had and all the armor, right? So when the Philistine arose, came near to, to meet David, uh, David ran quickly. That's right, I'll back it up a little bit. Verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bear in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, verse 42, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And that's like the biggest like, put down you can have. Not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to leave you out here and dishonor you by letting you be eaten by wild animals and the birds. And then David, verse 45, said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. I mean, this is like the best fight scene ever, right? These guys are facing off, and it kicks off. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took out his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So this is like the worst thing that could happen is that you're going against a young kid and he not only kills you with a rock, he then takes off your own sword and cuts your head off with it, right? So it's the worst of the worst. So everybody runs away. They're supposed to be serving them, remember? Whoever wins, you get to serve us, right? They're running for their lives. They fled. Verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. That's probably one of my favorite parts of the story, because all these folks were lining up for 40 days and 40 nights listening to this guy talk smack. And they were just cowering over here. And as soon as the little boy runs out there and kills the giant, they're like, yeah! And they run off after him and chase him out, right? Yeah. Like they did something. And then they come back and plunder the camp. I mean, David should get all that, right? This is how it goes. Now, the moral of the story. You've heard this story before. You've been reminded of it now. The moral of the story, and I bet most of us would agree with this, the moral of the story that you've probably been taught is this. If, like David, you have enough faith you can overcome the giants in your life, right? That's how I was taught. If you have faith like David, great faith, really trust the Lord, you can overcome the giants in your life. Well, there's a couple problems with that statement. So indulge me. Let me show you why I think that's not the way we should interpret this. First of all, a little bit of an exegetical lesson. Anytime you're reading the Scriptures... And if the people to whom this was written would have not understood it the way you're trying to understand it, it might be wrong. Okay, listen to this. This is, this is not the way, what I just said, that if you have enough faith, you can overcome your giants. It, the Israelites would never have interpreted this this way. Here's why. First of all, none of them were able to defeat Goliath, right? They weren't able to defeat Goliath. They needed a champion to fight for them, to step in their place. They would have related themselves to the army, not to David. Their greatest efforts were not enough to defeat the Philistines. And when David won the battle for them, they reaped all the benefits of the battle without ever having to fight the giant. So the Israelites would have said, no, 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 we're not like David. We're the army. We need a David. We need a David. We need a King David to step in for us. So they would never have interpreted it that way. The second problem is that that's not the way we're supposed to read the Bible either. So indulge me here. If David is our example, then this story leads to victory in our lives, 
only in a few times, but most of the time it leads to crushing defeat in our hearts. Because you will face giants in your life that you will not be able to overcome. And no matter how hard you pray, no matter how much you believe, no matter how much great faith you have, you may still be defeated by those giants in your life, and you can't overcome them, and it will lead you to depression or walking away from God. You'll say, that God didn't do anything for me. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and he wouldn't give me what I needed. What kind of God is that? The problem is he's given you everything that you need. It's just not in the answer to the prayer the way you were asking. He's given you everything you need in Jesus. And that's how this comes to the fruition. The solution to the problem here is the gospel of Jesus. That's how we understand this story. It's not in saying, I'm going to muster up enough faith and overcome the giants, because there's some of them you just can't do. You see, this story isn't ultimately about David. The grand scheme is, it's about God, right? If you go back and read these verses, look at 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. Look at it. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, right? And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that, listen, this is the reason why, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It's about God. Not about David. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear. Listen to this. The next word is the word for. Anytime you see the word for, F-O-R in scripture, what that's saying is everything I just said, here's the grounding reason for that statement. Okay? What I just got through telling you, now I'm going to tell you why. Right? Here's what he said. Read that part again. And all this assembly may know, go back, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. That's not David's battle, that's God's battle. That's not even Israel's battle, that's God's battle. And he will give you into our hand, David said. Look, this story is ultimately about God, and we can ultimately understand it through the person of Jesus. Because everything should point us to that. Everything should point us to Christ in the Scriptures. Everything in the Bible ultimately points to our need for a Savior, for a champion Redeemer who steps in our place to defeat the giants that we can't defeat. David was the champion Redeemer for the Israelite army, but Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the ultimate champion Redeemer. He will deliver us. He will rescue and redeem us. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who will deliver us. Jesus Christ the Son of God. He lived the life we could not live to be perfect. He was perfect. We are not. And he died the death that we deserve for our imperfections, for our sinfulness, so that he could then die the death under the weight of God's wrath that we deserve to endure forever. He was crushed under that for us so that he could then resurrect with power over death, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell because we could not defeat those giants so that we could then be brought into eternity with him for the life that only he deserves to be with him because of what he's done. He's our champion redeemer. He's the only way. See, the true moral of the story is basically this. It's not have faith like David and overcome the giants in your life. It's have faith and believe that God will deliver you, not because of the amount of faith that you have, but because of the amount of mercy and grace God has provided for you in Jesus on the cross. It changes everything. Just as David came onto the scene in the time of Israel's greatest need for a champion, now Jesus has come onto the scene in our time of greatest need for a champion, for a redeemer, in our sinfulness, in our inability. 
Because Jesus stepped into this world and became our champion redeemer, our hearts are now freed up to love him and trust him, to believe in him, because he has already defeated the giants in our lives. Satan, sin, death, and hell. He's done it. It is finished. Our time of greatest need, he overcame. He's not just our example, he's our champion. He is our redeemer. He's done what we could never do. In our place, he stood condemned on the giant cross of Calvary. Goliath attacked David with a spear, a giant spear nonetheless, and David was not killed or even pierced with a spear. But when the enemy attacked Christ on the cross, Jesus was pierced by a spear. And the scriptures tell us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We might still die one day. Most of us will. But death holds no power over us anymore. If we are in Christ, death was swallowed up in Christ's victory on the cross. In our place on the cross, he took care of it all. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our redeemer. He alone can make us clean and acceptable before God. He alone can overcome our sin that separates us from the love of the only God. He alone has already defeated the giants in our life that we can never defeat on our own. See, I came from a broken home, but now I'm adopted into the royal family of God. Not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done. And I've been made an heir with Jesus through His blood poured out on the cross for you and for me, and you can be adopted into it. I put my faith in my ability and in my religion and kept on failing, but now I've placed my faith in the one who will never fail me. And you can too. I was a liar, a womanizer, a manipulator to get what I thought I wanted from others, but now I found my value in the one who gave up his life for me on the cross, my king, my brother, my savior. An alcoholic, a murderer, a drug dealer, sin's too great. For me to overcome. Cannot. But now I've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And you can be too. There's no sin. Don't the enemy win on you in this. There's no sin too great that his blood cannot wash away. There is none. And when we hold on to that, and when we're hitting the face again with what we've done, what we've been a party to, or what we have not done that we should have done, and the enemy will preach it in your ear. And when you start to dwell on that, you take it to the cross again and say, Lord, remind me of the surpassing value of the blood of your son, Jesus, who washed away my sins on the cross. His blood is enough. At one time, even as a Christian, I put my own hope in my faulty morality. But now I'm putting my hope, and it's not even perfect now. I'm putting my hope and faith in the only one who is perfect and who perfectly holds me in his hands and who will never let me go. So give your battles to the Lord, for they are his battles. You are not the hero. 
We all want to be the hero, but we are not the hero. There's only room for one hero ultimately, and that's Jesus, the Christ, who gave his life for you. Instead of lifting ourselves up, let's recognize that Christ was lifted up for us so that we could be brought into the family of God and redeemed, even though we don't deserve it, and that we could be loved, even though we may never have felt accepted before. In Christ, we are accepted. So put your trust in him. Believe not wholly in yourself, but believe wholly in him. Don't believe in your own ability to have enough faith. Believe in his ability to accomplish what needed to be done on the cross, and it's done. It's finished. He's done it. He's the king. He's risen victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell, and it is over. He's won the victory. And now live your life in the freedom that comes only from placing your faith in Jesus, trusting in his ability, not your own. Let us trust in his work to overcome the giants in our lives and not in ourselves. There's been a song playing in my heart this whole series, and I could not get away from it. It's a song by a band called Rent Collective. Rent Collective. It's called The Rescuer, and I, and I just I want to share with you what God has been preaching in my heart every time I get in the car. This news we just talked about, the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection on our behalf to defeat the giants of Satan, sin, death, and hell. This is good news for the captive, good news for the shamed. This is good news for the one who walked away. That was me. I walked away. This is good news for the doubter, the one religion failed. For the good Lord has come to seek and save. So come and be chainless. Come and be fearless. Come to the foot of Calvary. For there is redemption for every affliction here at the foot of Calvary. Brothers and sisters, come to the cross today. It's your first time you give your life to Christ because Jesus changes everything. That's a message we can deliver to our neighbors that's a message we can deliver to those who are lost and lonely and with the broken and the brokenhearted. We can say, come meet a man who knows everything about me and still loves me, who loves me so much he gave his life for me and rescued me and delivered me and who can deliver you too. Come meet my hero. Bow down before him. Set your heart on him. His name is Jesus. He gave his life for you. He's our only righteousness. He's our only champion. He's our only hope. He's our only hero, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's no better way to end it than to let Scripture magnify him. So I'm going to read from Scripture now out of the book of Colossians and then out of Romans before we're done today, and we'll sing one more song together. He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. That's us. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable and unsearchable are his judgments and his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we are unable. No matter how hard we try, we can never do enough to earn your grace because it is only by the perfect sacrifice of your son that we can be brought into your family because we are inept and unable. And Lord, all the things that we've done that are horrible and that are defeating, you have overcome them in the blood of your son Jesus on the cross. In his death, we find hope because he didn't stay dead in the ground in some place in the Middle East, but he has risen from the dead in victory. And Lord, because he loves us too, he has given us victory as we put our hope and faith in him. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Would you work in our hearts that he would be our hero, daily reminded that he alone is our hero. Lord, just like in this story where the Israelites, they didn't do anything, but they got to reap the benefits and plunder all the riches that were left behind because of the work of their champion. We too get to plunder the riches and the benefits of all that was left for us in Jesus Christ, the perfect son. For he is our riches, Lord. Thank you for what you've given to us in him. Help us to love him back because he first loved us. We thank you for him, Lord, above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.